for um, Route 66 series, and I am so excited. I am just, I'm, I'm, I'm a little wired this morning about it. The, um, I, I knew this passage was coming. I, I was looking forward to, weeks ago, I was looking forward to getting back to 2 Samuel. We were in Galatians, and Galatians was good. I didn't realize how this was going to come together. I didn't realize that we were going to be in Galatians a week longer. In the midst of that, we have David... We had David Schroeder come along, and, and, he, and he shared with us a couple of weeks ago, and so that pushed the schedule a little bit. And what that did, it, well, certainly we returned to Route 66, and thus 2 Samuel, right after Galatians. But we pushed Galatians a little bit. We added an extra Galatian message, moved things along a couple of weeks on the calendar, and here we wound up at 2 Samuel chapter 2, continuing this series through God's Word, taking a big-picture view of a Bible book together. We wind up in 2 Samuel on Father's Day. Men, I don't think that's by chance. We have been talking about uh, being in step with the Spirit, and I think we are very in step with the Spirit. I think if there's anything we need to grab hold of as Father, there are leeches here that we need to be warned about. And yet we also need to know what are we going to do with them should they be stuck to us, all right? So we're going to be getting into, but first I want to give you an overview. We're going to get into uh, chapters 11 and 12 in particular, but before we do that, I do want to give you just a brief overview of the book as a whole, and you have that on your, on your sermon notes insert. So I hope you have your insert in front of you, because just, I'm just going to briefly summarize the gray on the right-hand side. Second Samuel is about the life of David. It begins in the first six chapters with David's coronation. First he's coronated the king of Judah, then he's crowned the king of all of Israel, all of the 12 tribes. There's some political intrigue that goes on in the middle of that, but, but David trusts the Lord to fulfill his promises. He doesn't work through schemes and man's plan. He trusts the Lord to bring him the kingdom, to set him as king, even as God had promised. So there's a, there's a, there's a mark of David's faith in those chapters. The ark is brought back to Jerusalem as well. It's a worshipful time. It culminates in chapter 7, one of the important chapters of the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant, where God makes a promise to David that, that, that his throne will continue to have one of his sons. There will be other kingdoms where the throne will move from family to family to family, but David's, the, the family of David will always be king in Jerusalem. And there's going to be a son come from David who will be king forever. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the, is the son of Abraham, the son of David, as the, as the Gospels testify. He is the fulfillment of that promise to David there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That chapter would be worth a study all on its own. God makes a promise. God fulfills his promise all the way through history. In chapters 8 through 10, based on God's promise, David's kingdom is consolidated. And you find, just like it would be for Christ in centuries later, he defeats his enemies, but also in the midst of that, you have an example of David's grace that portrays God's grace to us in David's gracious act to a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is another great story all on its own. But David is gracious to this man. The undeserving as he is, David is gracious to him just because he has the desire to be and because he had promised that he would be. 
It's a great example. It's a great picture of David's son, his, his descendant, Jesus, our Savior, who has been gracious to us, as crippled and undeserving as we are, just because he desires to be and because he has promised to be. It's a wonderful story up to that point, the life of David. So much promise, it's only going to get better. But then it begins to get worse. You turn ahead a few pages, chapters 13 to 24, you find consequences being played out in the life of David and his family. You'll, you'll, you'll understand that more when we look at chapters 11 and 12. But those consequences start up right away in chapter 13 where David's son Amnon takes um, a, his half-sister, a woman that, that is not his, and he takes her for himself and he ends up being killed for it. Chapter 14 to 19 is, is another of David's son, Absalom, and he, he conspires against his father David. There's a coup d'etat within the family. Absalom takes his father's throne. Absalom takes some of his father's wives or concubines. Absalom ends up dying as well. They, you, you find in, in chapter 23, David counting on God. It's, it's, it's called David's last words in chapter 23. And it's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of trust to God. And then uh, uh, the, the book closes on an interesting note, a note of warning, where we find David counting on man. There's the story of one of the censuses that David took and the consequences that come when David is not looking to the Lord when he's looking at man himself. That's an interesting warning at the end of the book because when David takes his eyes off the Lord and off God's promises for him, that's how we end up in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 as well. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 tell the story of David's sin with Bathsheba and the consequences that come out of that sin. How did it happen? And what happens from there what can we learn from it? I want us to read beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you have one of the pew Bibles in front of you this morning, maybe you didn't bring your Bible this morning, then you would find us on page 221. But I encourage you to have your Bible open. I'm not going to read through both chapters now, but we will be jumping back in and going. At, uh, we'll stop at this verse. We'll look at that verse along the way. So have your Bible open. Hopefully you'll have that note page in front of you. Let's ask the Lord to lead us. Father, would you give us grace? Would you open your word to us, Lord, in ways that uh, you speak to us? Father, we need your spirit. Lord, our hearts are, as we sang earlier, prone to wander. Lord, we need you to grab hold of our hearts this morning. Lord, and not merely warn us, not merely shake us, but Father, would you show us not only your glory, but would you show us also your mercy? Lord, we will need that this morning. We pray that you would show yourself to us in that way. As pure and holy and powerful, the one to whom we are accountable, and yet also the one to whom we can flee, the one who will be our refuge, and the one who will forgive us and cleanse us. Lord, that's what we need this morning. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11 from verse 1. In the spring, at a time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
At the time when the kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening David got up while he remained in Jerusalem, got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, one of the men engaged in that battle while David stayed home. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Parentheses. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Let me translate that. That means it's a week after her cycle had ended. She is at the prime of ovulation. There's a hint that something's going to happen. Then she went home. The woman conceived. She sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Uriah came to him. David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were, how the war was going, blah, blah, blah. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet, see your wife. There's going to be a baby, and I want you to think it's yours. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Oh, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel, are, uh, of, the ark and, Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So there's David. At the time in the spring, and we have that in our experience as well. What is this, springtime? Is baseball season and war season? How does that work? Well, just because of the climate, just because of what's going on with the seasons. Like in Afghanistan, the war slowed down during the harsh winters, couldn't get through the mountain passes. And when spring comes, the fighting would begin anew year after year after year. And so it was in that day, even as this day. Things haven't changed so much. And so the springtime comes, it's time for war, it's time to consolidate some victories. There's been some rebellion last fall that David should sort out. This is the time when kings go to war, and the times when kings go to war, but David remained home. Neglecting what God has called him to leaves David open to distraction and temptation. That's an important note. How did, David, how did David get to this fall? He didn't plan. He didn't wake up. He said, I think I'm going to ruin my kingship. I think I'm going to throw away my, my family's heritage. I think I'm going to take this upward, upward, upward trajectory that God has set me on. I think I'm going to turn that downhill. He didn't wake up this morning thinking that. A man doesn't wake up this morning thinking, I'm going to ruin my marriage. I think I'm going to ruin my family. I'm never never going to have a Father's Day the way that it has been before. I'm not going to do that anymore. Nope. I'm going to tear the family apart. I'm going to break down the trust that I've built up. That's what I'm going to do today. No. But it comes upon us. We, we, We... 
fall into things that Galatians 6 said, if anyone be ensnared, if any man be ensnared by sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. We are ensnared. We get trapped. How did it happen with David? First of all, David was not where he should have been. David was not where the, 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 the place of the king was at the head of his army. When the kings go off to war, the king should go with the army to war. That was the norm. God had set him to be king. David stayed home. Staying out of the battle that God has led us into. We learn in Galatians 6 that if you, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not, sorry, Galatians 5, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You can't have it both ways. You can't be walking with God and be in the middle of sin. But if you're going to play around with sin, you'll find, I'm not walking with the Lord anymore. Oh, look at that. How did that happen? We are weak and frail and broken. We have to intentionally give ourselves to following the Lord or we will end up serving ourselves and serving flesh. That's point number one. Are you going to battle or are you glued to the screen? Are you going to battle or are you glued to the screen? As I think about this, this situation, David looks. And instead of quickly looking away, saying, oh, there is danger there. He sees that lake. He doesn't think there could be leeches in the water. No, no. He says, ooh, I think I'll put my feet in. Ooh, I think I'll wait around a little bit in this. Pretty soon he has jumped in. And the leeches are sucking the life out of his monarchy. David looks, and instead of looking away, he looks further, and that leads him to adultery, and actually it leads him to murder. Uri he brings Uriah back from the front, and when Uriah doesn't, doesn't go home as David had planned, David says, hey, stay another day. i got some more things I want to talk about. just want to give you some rest. By the way, come, let me, let me give you some wine. Let me give you a little more. Let me ha have some more wine. He gets him drunk so that surely he'll, he will... He will not exercise the same restraint and integrity. Certainly Uriah will go down to his own house and we can cover this thing up. And Uriah doesn't do it. Uriah doesn't do it. Isn't it interesting how Uriah, the victim in the story, has more integrity than David at this point? So David's adultery leads to lying and murder in an attempt to cover it up. He looks, he looks further, and that leads him into disaster. As I thought about this passage, I was thinking about how does this play out for us today, and we are in an age. It's a dangerous age. The internet age is a very, very dangerous age. I, 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 I've heard Ravi Zacharias speak on two different occasions recently. And on each of those different occasions, one was here at Missions Connection, one was way across the country. And in both of those occasions, he brought up the same point. And he, and he admitted, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want to write about this, but we have to address it, church, because this is killing us. It's killing our society. We are in an age where, where pornography... The looking is far more disastrous than it ever has been before because of high-speed internet with the accessibility, 
with the affordability. You can get images for free. You don't even have to pay for a, prescri- for a subscription to a magazine that comes in a plain brown wrapper anymore. It's free. It's before you. You will easily stumble into it. And there's anonymity hidden away. It seems like nobody will know. And it gets its clutches into you. You look like David. And instead of looking away, you look a little further. And before you know it, men, you will be ensnared. You will be caught. You will find you're not able to just walk away from it, leave it. It, it grabs hold of your mind and does things with your ba- brain chemistry so that the pleasure centers work differently and expect and require different stimuli. It'll begin to change you. and it'll, it'll change how you look at other women. It'll change how you look then maybe at your own wife. It'll change where you can find pleasure and fulfillment and where you can't. It's a very insidiously dangerous thing and it is all around us. Our our desires, we're led along and enticed by our own desires that leads into sin. James 1.14 says that leads into death. Some of the results... Uh, and some of the reading I've had to do this week, there's a loss of relational intimacy, there's addictive and destructive behavior, the rapid rapid click novelty of high-speed internet has made this more of a problem today than it even was 10 years ago. It is huge, and unless there are, we, we face this with, direct and up front, it will ruin us. It'll ruin your neighbors, it'll ruin your extended family, We've got to address it. See, often we, we think nobody else has this problem but me, and so we hide. My leeches example, instead of getting help, getting those ones off the back that I can't see, we just put a shirt on, we pretend they're not there, and we go on, and they suck us dry. We pretend that nobody else has this problem, it's just me, who could I tell? Or... The other side of that is, is men will convince themselves, I'm not the only one. Almost all men are looking at this stuff. It's really no big deal. In fact, my wife just needs to realize that this is just the way men are and just accept it. No. No, we don't accept it. We cannot accept it because it will draw the very life out of us. It will draw the life out of our relationship. You cannot substitute in that way and have a healthy relationship. Are you going to battle or are you glued to the screen? The first point I want to make is, is it's, it's like that pressing to the center. I could tell you, stay away from the internet, stay away from those images, look out. If you, when you, at first sight, you have to turn away, make sure you're accountable, make sure you have protections on your computer and all of that, but that will not protect you if I do not tell you this. Instead of going there, you need to be walking in the Spirit. In Galatians 6, we need to be walking with the Lord. If David had been in the battle, he would not have been on his rooftop in Jerusalem. Are we in the battle? Am I walking with the Lord? Am I determined to feed my soul? And am I, am I growing together with others who are growing in the Lord and thus challenging me further, or am I coasting? Because if I am coasting, either I am slowing down or I'm going downhill, one or the other. If I'm coasting and picking up speed, folks, I don't have to tell you what side of the hill you're on. 
We have to be intentional about spiritual life, deliberate choices like we talked about in Galatians 6 because if we want to reap of the Spirit, if we want spiritual fruit, we will have to sow to the Spirit because if we sow to the flesh, if we play around with this, it'll eat us alive. It'll eat us alive. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap destruction, Galatians 6 told us. If we sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit we will reap eternal life. And our Lord has given us eternal life in order that we can live in it now, today. Not sometime in the future, but today. Are you going to battle or are you glued to the screen? That's the first point. Related to that, well, if I'm in the midst of this, if I've dabbled in this, can you really get away with it? Could I really get away with it? David thought he could. David engineered a plan that he would send instructions with Uriah back to the front that, that, that Uriah would, would carry these instructions to Joab. Joab was told, set Uriah out in front. Have him advance close. Have him be the point out ahead of the rest of the army. And when he's out there and vulnerable, have the others withdraw so that Uriah will be cut down. And Uriah is killed. Word is sent back to David. Bathsheba grieves her husband, and then she and David are married. And now there's going to be a child born. It's not a problem that it's David's son because now they're married, and it all happens pretty quickly. Maybe the baby was born a little early, but it looks like we got away with it. Now that works in all kinds of areas, not just the particular one about pornography and Internet that I'm talking about this morning. That works in all kinds of areas. It looks like I got away with it. It looks like I got away with it. But look at the end of chapter 12. After the time of mourning was passed, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife. She bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Can you really get away with it? You know, there are, there are things that scare me greatly. You know why? Because I am quite sure God will not let me get away with it. I dare not. I dare not dabble in this. I know, the, I know the weakness. I know the propensity of my own flesh. And I know this well. My Lord will not let me. For your sakes, he will not let me get away with it. And so, he loves us. He cares us. He cares for us. He loves David. He will not let David get away with this. And because he will not let David get away with it, We'll try to hide our sin. As we hide our sin, it gets a secret place to grow. We'll involve others. We'll hurt others. I, one of the things I came across this week, it was an internet article. It was on one of the, one of the basic waste pages like, um, well, the, you know, Yahoo and MSN and all these, just your gateway internet pages that have just the goofiest articles. And one of them was, will my friend keep my affair a secret? No! Of course they're not. They may think they will. They may, they may try, but the, you, you will not get away with it. They will not keep it tucked away and hidden. It will come out. Your sin will find you out. Our God is faithful. We will reap what we sow. We will not get away with it. God will forgive, but there are consequences. Galatians chapter 6 taught us that we will reap what we sow, right? 
David will reap what he sows. I'm going to talk about Nathan's approach to David in the next step, but first let's jump ahead to the consequences. Yeah, can I go ahead? Won't God forgive? Yes, God will forgive, but sometimes even with God's forgiveness, there are consequences. Look at Nathan's reply. The Lord has taken away your sin in verse 13 of chapter 12. You're not going to die, but because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. You know, Nathan comes to David. And he, he, he paints him a picture. He tells him a story. He tells him about a man who had one little lamb, and this lamb was precious to him. He raised it like a pet. He kept it in the house with him. It was the only lamb that he had. There was a wealthy man who had hundreds of, of sheep and goats. He had herds all over the place. And a visitor came along to the wealthy man. And so he's going to provide dinner. Instead of taking one of, out of his own herd, he took the poor man's lamb because he thought he could get away with it. And he took that lamb and he, and he, and he slaughtered that little lamb instead. And that was the lamb that was offered for his guest, for, for his feast. And David was a shepherd. Oh, there's a story David got. David got this lamb and how precious a lamb could be, raising it up, nurturing it perhaps from sickness back to health. And David was enraged. And David said, that man, that man will pay fourfold. He deserves to die. He will pay fourfold for that lamb that he took. And David's quoting Exodus 22 Verse 1, when he says that, that was the law's judgment. If you took another man's lamb, you killed another person's sheep or goat, and you would have to repay it fourfold. David knew the law. He knew what it said. Nathan says to him, you're the man. David said he'll have to pay fourfold. The child dies. You read chapter 12, the child dies. But not only that child, the next chapter, another of David. So that's the first son to die. The next chapter, Adonijah dies. He's killed by Absalom, the brother to the woman that Adonijah, no, not Adonijah, um, Amnon, David's first son, Amnon, the, 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 uh, Absalom kills him. Then Absalom himself rebels, and in a similar manner as David, going after what was not his and taking it for himself, Absalom also is killed. And you know, at the very end of this book, the first chapter of 1 Kings, there's one more son, Adonijah. Again, goes after that which is not his. Tries to set himself up to be king instead, and he ends up being executed for treason as well. Fourfold. Four sons is what it costs David. Why does David grieve so much when Absalom is killed? Absalom has run him out of Jerusalem. Adam, Absalom has openly shamed him by taking his concubines on the rooftop of the palace, the same rooftop from which David first saw Bathsheba. Why does David grieve Absalom's death so much? Because he saw something of his own guilt coming home to roost in the consequences that were played out in his own family as a result of his sin. Fourfold. It will cost us something. We will not get away with it. I must move on. What would you say then when sin is uncovered? 
what would you say? That's where I want to talk first of all about Nathan. Nathan approaches David. The Lord was not pleased. We read at the end of of chapter 11. The Lord was not pleased. And so, chapter 12 and verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He tells him the story about the little lamb, the one lamb versus the herds, the rich man and the poor man. And David is enraged, and he he tells a story, he tells it in a way that gets David's heart. And there's nothing here that says that this is a a public and open shaming of David. It doesn't say that. It says that Nathan went to David. And Nathan went to David in a way that David would hear him. Nathan was a faithful friend. Nathan was a friend who would not point and talk, but rather would come alongside David and say, Man, you got leeches on your back. Let me help you. You're in a heap of trouble. You're bleeding like crazy and you don't even know it. David came to him with a story that David would hear. Oh, we need to know one another. You know, there's a lot to be said for accountability and how we hold one another accountable and we ask one another the hard questions. But we need to know one another and we need to be close to the Lord ourselves that his spirit will lead us, that we will be walking in step with the spirit when the spirit says, you need to talk to this person. You need to ask about. You need to say. Nathan only knew to go because the spirit of God sent him. That's the same spirit that indwells us. We can be Nathan for one another. What will you say? Will you talk to other people about what you've heard? Or will you go to your brother? Will you go to your sister? And will you confront them in a way in which they can hear when one is caught ensnared in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And here we have probably one of the best examples of that in all of the Bible laid out right in front of us. Nathan tells him a story that David could hear, and David hears it. In verse 13, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan Nathan puts his finger on his chest, and he says, David, you're the man. You're the rich man. You're the one who took. And why did you do that, David? Why did you do that? Oh, hear the Lord's words. The Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says in verse 7. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. I gave you the Davidic covenant, David. I said the kingdom would never depart from your family. I said there would be a son come from you who would reign on your throne forever. David, I gave you everything. David, you were a man after God's own heart. Verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? There it is. There it is. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Why did you look down on that? Why did you so belittle in your own eyes the promises of God so that they ended up not mattering much at all as you glibly and carelessly went your way and were ensnared by your own desires, even to death. Where did it start? By taking too lightly, by not esteeming, by despising, by looking down upon, by not looking to the promises of God. You and I, you and I are called. You know, I I was struck just recently, I was praying. Dan, this is why I wrote that in your card. 
I was reading in Ephesians, and it struck me that Paul prayed for his church that we would know the hope of our calling. That we would know, we would see the greatness, the grandeur of what it is that God has called us to so we wouldn't despise it, we wouldn't look down on it. We wouldn't seek to medicate ourselves in other ways. And the next thing he prays is that you would know, the eyes of your mind would be enlightened so you would know the riches of God's inheritance and the saints, that you and I would know how deeply precious we are to God. Don't despise God's promises. Don't despise your worth in his eyes. Oh, that'll direct our steps. If we keep those things before us, and the third thing, if we remember his power toward us who believe, those three things will propel us through life into eternity, walking in step with the Spirit. What God has called us to, what we are to him, and his power in us who believe. We are not left alone to wander about and to try somehow to hold down and to resist our own desires. No, Walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the faith. When I turn away from the Spirit, when I look down on those things, when these things are so much more attractive, that's when I get hooked. That's where I get entangled. And that's where I'll get sucked down. And you will too. What would you say? Restore one another with a spirit of gentleness, but deal with the root of it, not just the behavior, not just the boundary. You broke the boundary. Why did you? Because you took your eyes off where they should have been. Why did Peter begin to sink below those waves when Jesus calls him out of the boat to come to him? Why did Peter begin to sink? It was when he got his eyes off of the Lord. We need to set our eyes on our Savior and what he has called us to, and that will direct our steps. That will lead us. The, the root was David not finding fulfillment in God's promise to him, he begins to self-medicate to look for his own fulfillment in other places. And it does not satisfy. Remember the song, only you can satisfy. Only our Lord can satisfy. Nothing else will. It'll only ruin us. It'll use us ourselves to ruin us. David confesses his sin. He does not lie and deny. He owns up to it, step one. You cannot be restored without confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. But until you have agreed with God, God, I am guilty. And not merely that I did something, I broke the rules. I chose that instead of you. I despised your promise. I despised your calling and tried to fulfill myself another way. God, for that, forgive me. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's some practical prevention interventions as well. There is on the back of your sermon notes. There, there, uh, I tried to provide several helpful things. I believe this is an issue, and I tried to provide several helpful things. One of those things is there's an email address. One of the men in the church has said, I'll be the contact point. I've been around this. I know the danger here. I've gotten too close to it myself. I am willing to, to, to help direct another man who wants to get those leeches off his back, I'll help. I'll be there. I'll show him the way to go. 
You may not even want to tell me about it. Use this email. Somebody will respond to you. There's an email there to get confidential help. There's some other resources that we put on the BP Church website. If you're also interested in what could we do, how can we make it less accessible, how can we make it less anonymous, wives, moms, would you guard your homes? Would you take steps? Would you find out? Emailing me on this. I would like to. Don't wait till your husband says, I've got a problem. Don't wait till he has a problem. Don't wait till he gets tempted. Inquire. I'll be happy to take these emails. What could I do? We'll point you to some of the... There's all kinds of filtering. There's all kinds of solutions that can help put up some safeguards. But the greatest safeguard is that we press our hearts toward our Savior. But there are practical options, information, some of that's on the back of those notes. Last of all, I want to I remind us, in a heavy topic like this, don't miss God's mercy. Some of you men are feeling guilty right now. Some of you men have been ensnared. Some of you men know you've been places you shouldn't go. You were drawn aside, and you were enticed. And maybe now you would say, I'm, I'm ensnared. I don't know what to do. Don't miss God's mercy. The difference between David and Esau, David is called later on in Acts a man after God's own heart. Really, this David, this murderer, this adulterer, this David is a man after God's own heart? Where Esau, Esau trades away his birthright for a bowl of porridge, a bowl of stew. He despised God's calling for a meal to feed his appetites. And later, when Esau tried to undo it, he could find no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. What's the difference between the two of them? David saw himself. David saw his guilt. David regretted his sin and sought cleansing from God. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Create a right spirit within me. Esau regretted what he had lost. He regretted the consequence. Are you sorry about sin or are you sorry about getting caught? You can be. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen. All of us have stumbled. At one point or another, every one of us have been ensnared. We don't need to pretend. Rather, rather, we can claim God's mercy and still be men after God's own heart. David's spirit is restored. Read about it in Psalm 32, Psalm 51. You can be whole again. Intimacy and trust can be restored again. You can feel close to God. You know, nothing draws you closer to God than experiencing his redemption and his cleansing and his forgiveness. Nothing draws you closer to your Savior than that. And you know, at the end of chapter 12, this is the pivotal point of the book. At the end of chapter 12, look what happens. 29. David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of the king. Its weight is, it's, it's, it's a really big crown. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there and so on and so forth. David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. David gets back in the battle again. God continues to give David victory again. There is mercy in the story. And David describes that mercy. You don't have to take it from me. You can find it. You can find David writing about it himself in Psalm 32. I put this on the bottom of our notes this morning. I'll put some of it on the screen. When I kept silent. When I kept silent. When I tried to hide. My bones wasted away. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
But then I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There is mercy in this story. David has experienced it. I love that the Bible is honest. I love that the Bible is honest about us. I love that you can be honest to God with what he already knows, but is waiting for you to take that first step of, would you agree with him about it? Would you stop hiding? Would you say, Lord, this is sin. I agree with you. I want your freedom. I want you to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me out of your presence. But restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we have spoken this morning about an insidious danger. We, we swim in infected waters. As a swimmer in dirty water, somebody's going to get an ear infection. Lord, so it is with us. Lord, in the midst of, in the midst of this, sin all around us and yet it is within us. Lord, we need your mercy. Father, that's where we come this morning now, Lord, that you would indeed hear our prayer of confession. Lord, around this room right now, as men are saying, I need God's mercy. I confess my sin. Lord, around this room this morning, as women in whatever area are saying the same thing. Lord, there's sin that I've been hiding. There's sin that I would confess because I want to press close to you again. I want to walk with the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Lord, would you, true to your promise, cleanse us? Would you forgive us our sins as you forgave David? Would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? We ask it in Jesus' name.